Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let's continue worshiping the Lord this morning by opening our Bibles to Psalm 122. You thought I was going to say 1 Peter, didn't you? Psalm 122. Here David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. We praise you for how it does speak to us. We ask now that you would give the Holy Spirit to help us understand it, illumine the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the beauty of Christ, And that we might relish all the more the company of our King. Not just in isolation. Not just as individuals. But to relish His company together as a body of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So from time to time, I'll go looking in my closet for clothes that are no longer there. Because Jenny, my wife, has as deftly done away with them. Thing is, uh, I didn't know they were gone until I went looking for them. Uh, Their disappearance made no difference in my day, right? They were there one moment, they were gone the next moment, whatever. That is the way of non-essentials. But, insert myself into the Indiana Jones film, where the guy gets his beating heart pulled from his body, Okay, now that's something I'd immediately notice. I say my heart remaining in my body and beating is essential for life. Whether it's in or out, beating or not, makes a a fairly significant difference. Here's where I'm going with all that. For you is gathering with the saints for corporate worship in the company of our king more like the ratty shirts in my closet or the beating heart in your chest. 
If corporate worship were to disappear from your life, would you notice? Would it be that big of a difference? Is corporate worship a non-essential or is it essential to us? Uh, We show what we actually believe, not just by how we answer such questions, for I hope we all know the biblical answer, but by how we apply the answer, I hope we know. It means little to say, this gathering is essential only to treat it like my ratty shirts and increasingly undersized pants. That is, as something easily set aside. Beloved, I stand on biblical ground this morning and pray a good conscience also in saying to you, I treasure very little as much as these heavenly moments with you in the company of our King. And what this psalm really wants to do then, and I buy it, is to work our hearts toward a view of His corporate worship as essential for us. Can't miss it. Wouldn't miss it for all the world. To fully grasp this, uh, let's just talk context for a little bit and really just what's mission critical this morning. Uh, the Psalter, so these, uh, this, this book was 150 songs in it. The Psalter, like every other book of the Bible, has this overarching story to tell. Each psalm's been collected, I don't know if you know this, but then it's been arranged by a divinely inspired editor toward a divinely inspired end. So, you have these five main sections in the Psalter, each with their own distinct but related themes from the, uh, the delivered life of God's people to life in exile because of their sin to hope in the midst of their exile to final restoration as God's people. And behind it all is this, this one expectation ultimately of divine blessing through a new David. It's Genesis 12 and it's 2 Samuel 7. And the gracious promises God's made to his people through Abraham, Genesis 12, and David, 2 Samuel 7. Which is to say, the Psalter stands upon and then also uniquely develops the bigger story of the Bible that comes to a head in Jesus Christ. And the editor of the Psalter, he understands this. He understands this. Case in point, within the Psalter, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Within the Psalter, David, quote-unquote, dies. After Psalm 72, David's songs end. They're done. Except they're not. (laughs) They don't stop. But first, right after he's, quote-unquote, died, you have Psalms 73 to 89, which chronicle Israel in exile. Not a coincidence. David's died. The nation goes into exile. And as an exile, you then need songs of steel. You get Psalms 90 to 106 that lead us into the last section of the Psalter, singing of God's sovereign mercy. And the last thing, you actually come to section 5. You come to section 5, and all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, Psalms of David start popping up all over the songbook again. As if the editor intentionally held them back specifically 
for this section as a reminder to the nation that their hope had not died with David. No, rather, it lived on in the promise of a new and greater David, even the Christ. And our psalm today, Psalm 122, as one of those songs of David after the songs of David, is thus right in the middle of that hope. Situated as it is on the front end of what's called the Psalms of Ascent, which they're called because Israel would sing them as after some absence from the assembly, they would ascend. They would ascend to Mount Zion to worship the Lord together again. So as we come to our psalm then, there's real power in it, especially in this regard. It is a a hymnic expression of their essential longing after periods of separation from one another to come together for corporate worship under the direction, not just of David past, but of David future. Even of our everlasting Lord Jesus. And in this, to serve as a type, not just of us today, but with us as a foretaste to all of the worship that's coming in the new Jerusalem. Now that's a lot. So let's come to Psalm 122. Think with me first about corporate worship and heeding the king's heart. Corporate worship and heeding the king's heart. You look at verses 1 and 2, this is how David begins. He says, I was what? Glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. All right, so you see Israel's posture here. Not so much how they're standing, but how they're longing. There are exclamation points for a reason. They've been away from Jerusalem. They've been away from the city of God. They've been away from corporate worship. But they've now made the trek. They've ascended the mount. They've arrived as one at the place of worship. And it seems they can hardly be held back then from going together before the Lord to praise Him as one people. And so the initial question we ought to ask ourselves is, is that how we approach the Lord's day? Do we approach this hour with overflowing expectation and joy and eagerness and even relief? You had to remember this was, this was something that had been taken away from Israel when they went into exile. And they had felt its absence. They had felt its absence. It was not the ratty shirt. It was the beating heart. And so once they were freed from captivity, they made a beeline, as much as the terrain allowed, to the sanctuary. It was essential for them. Is corporate worship essential for us? Do we love to gather as one to worship the Lord? Are we eager to make the trek? Do we appreciate the ascent? We actually do have a little bit of an ascent into the sanctuary here. Do we stand on our toes? In a day 
with many obstacles to corporate worship and many making use of them and even espousing them as viable alternatives to corporate worship, can we be markedly held back from the spiritual house of the Lord? Israel couldn't, at least not here. And it appears we only will where we lose touch with the grace that's freed us specifically for this. But now, there's something else to see here, and it's that as they go, they extend an invitation to the king. Let us go to the house of the Lord, which gladdened the king's heart. As one put it, quote, he was delighted when others invited him to go where his desires had already gone. And this back and forth really struck me in a few ways this week. For one, and again, the king's heart really should challenge our own. He was glad to attend corporate worship at the invitation of those he ruled. He was not sour about it. He wasn't apprehensive about it. He was not apathetic towards it. He was not above it. He was glad about it. It was in his heart to go and gather with God's people. And if this is true of David, it's all the more true of Jesus. And if Jesus was glad to gather, shouldn't we be also? Beloved, to heed the king's heart, we've got to know the king's heart. And here, his heart is made known. And beyond challenging us, how encouraging. How encouraging. For we say, will the king condescend to attend a gathering so small? That seems beneath him. He's the king. No. Where two or three are gathered for church discipline (laughs) in my name, there am I among them. Okay, some say, I'm sorry, I've just found other things I have to attend. But friends, do we think King David had less opportunities for entertainment? Do we think King David had less demands upon his time? Do we think King David had less to distract him from what was most important? You go read the history of Israel. Other kings of Israel showed no problem neglecting and full-on forsaking The assembly of God. But not David. Why? Because David had his priorities straight and true to God. Still others. They say, well listen, I am not going to gather with them. They are such a mess. Yes, amen, it's true. And the king is gracious. Who wants to gather for worship with sinners and tax collectors. Um, Jesus. Friends, let's not pretend like Israel had it all together. Israel was a hot mess. That's why they were exiled. They were a sadly ungodly lot, yet David was glad to go with them at their 
invitation? And will Jesus, David's Savior, be any less inclined to attend us at our invitation? No. And to that point, let's then remember Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. It is possible to gather for worship without inviting the king. Jesus chastised the Pharisees for honoring God with their what? Their lips while their hearts were far from Him. Judas praised Jesus as they came down the Mount of Olives. And within hours, we know how that turned out. And the church at Laodicea thought that they were rich and prosperous. But Jesus was on the outside of the church. (laughs) He says they were lukewarm, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked because they had put Him out. They gathered for worship, but they did not invite the king. But you remember what Jesus says to them, and what a gracious word to us. He says, behold, I stand, not at a distance, I stand at the door. I'm at the door, and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me That's the king's heart. That's the king's heart. Jesus is always glad and eager, graciously at the ready to give the gathered church His essential and galvanizing presence. So, we do nothing better than enjoining Him to join us who desires nothing more than to do precisely that. Beloved, our gathering for worship says, much about our heeding our King's heart. Let's think second. Let's think second about corporate worship as reflecting the King's rule. David goes on, you see in verses 3 to 5. He says, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed For Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord, there thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. And so one's called the local assembly of believers, the embassy of Christ's rule. We get a picture of that here. The throne of David is set in the city of God. And that for judgment, he says. And coming out of verses 1 to 2, the question for us is, how does that then relate to corporate worship? A few thoughts. One, the king is the designated leader of the worshiping assembly. As David alludes to, you go to Psalm 42, verse 4, this is what he says, quote, how I would go with the throng and lead them in raucous procession to the house of God. And likewise today, a pastor may take to the pulpit 
but Christ alone has the throne in corporate worship. He's the leader and the very life of our worship services. So that if I or anyone overstep our bounds or try to sort of leapfrog Jesus, it's incumbent upon you for all our sake to point it out and get us back in line. Our task is to mediate His reign to you and try our best not to obscure that chain of command. It's to put ourselves under His Word with prayers and pleas for saving and sanctifying mercies. Because you see, there's another aspect of His rule. And it's identifying and edifying His citizens. The citizens of His kingdom. Go later this afternoon and read Matthew 25. And you'll see that Jesus looks upon His flock at the end of time, and what does He do? He judges them. He identifies which ones are His. He separates the sheep from the goats. Or go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, as Jesus walks with eyes like a flame of fire, all seeing eyes among His lampstands. What is He doing? Well, He's meaning to edify His, his sheep. You remember those chapters from two years ago? I'm sure you do. Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands to commend them and to praise them and to encourage them and to uplift them, but also to correct them and reprove them and rebuke them and call them to repentance in order to make us a church, here it is, that is increasingly reflecting the gracious and godly character of His rule within our hearts and within our lives. Here's the thing. He does this. He makes His kingdom visible in the assembly of His saints. So, what if we then neglect that assembly? Because it appears in the text that however distant uh, we are from His assembly, we are that distant from Blessed identification with His throne. His throne's there. With His rule, His rule is there. That's where it's seen. And even with His own person, that's where He is enthroned. Now, no doubt, Jesus goes with us wherever we go. And more, His throne sits atop the universe. But still, it appears here that it's in the city of God. It's in His worshiping assembly that the King delights to make His rule especially visible to all creation. This, as John Bunyan poeticized it, is the next door to heaven. Can you believe that? This is when and where we and all should uniquely sense God is among us. And just so, the shout of a king. And David here points out three aspects of his rule. That corporate worship heightens, makes it all the more visible, like a mount that comes out from the clouds. 
And the first thing I won't spend much time on because it's the entire subject of the psalm Nathan's going to be preaching for us in two weeks. So get ready for that. It'll be good. But that, that subject is unity. Church, it's really impossible. Okay, we need to hear this. It's really impossible to showcase the supernatural unity we have in Christ when we don't gather to worship Christ together. Hard to show unity when you're by yourself in isolation or something like that. So, when David depicts his worshiping kingdom, verse 3, it's a city built in tight quarters. What does he say there? It's bound firmly together. And as his city was, so his people were to be. But he mentions here the tribes going up to worship. How many tribes of Israel are there? There we go. Good. Whew. <clears throat> and while those 12 tribes uh, were all technically kin, in many cases they could not be any more different. Right? They had their own lands, they had their own histories, they had their own troubles, their own sins, their own cultures. But still, at their best, they assembled together for worship as the tribes of the Lord. You see that? And the last bit is really critical to hear. How for all their differences and atop all their similarities, one thing bound them firmly together. They were the Lord's tribes. Their bond in the Lord was then stronger than any natural dividers. It was when David died, by the way, and the Lord was no longer central that Israel split into two kingdoms and the whole project became a train wreck and we should take note of that. But so long as David lived among them and the Lord's reign was prominent, his people were bound firmly together. And their gathering as one for corporate worship was in a special way that the king's reign was then made visible. But it's not only our unity that does this. There is next our fidelity. Verse 4, to the Lord's decree. It's going to be very simple here. Extreme circumstances aside, like a pandemic, gathering for corporate worship showcases the king's reign because gathering for corporate worship is a matter of obedience to the king's word. I don't know if it's ever been more okay to count corporate worship as a wearisome suggestion of fallible men rather than the sole essential decree of the infallible God, which is what it really is. Are we trusting God? Are we trusting God? I believe it. God knows what is best for you. He does. He made us and He redeemed us precisely for taking joy together in His grace and in His glory. And would that we would do it, decree or no decree. 
I mean, ideally, we'd just be absolutely inclined this way as Adam and Eve were in the beginning. But the fall happened. And though we've been redeemed, our desires then aren't always what they should be. They do sometimes run afoul of the king's decree. They run contrary to our spiritual best. And so we make our own decrees, right? We're inclined on occasion to play God and skip out and put words in the king's mouth to justify our absence and in short, to desire wrongly. But the decree then exists to overrule said desires. By decree, God's not left it up to you and me. By decree, he directs and supports the desire we should innately have to worship him with all his saints. And friends, if we should just say this, say, no, that's just the Old Testament, that's all law, and I'm free from the, the decree, I'd say we have not understood the dominion of grace very well. Praise God, we are free from the power and penalty of sin, but not, not from glad-hearted obedience all God's word. Indeed, just the opposite. And what's more, does not the grace and the love of Jesus mean to charm our souls into a gleeful submission to Him? And does He not then call us in the New Testament not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together? Already in the New Testament, early church, it was the habit of some. But the Spirit of Christ, our King, tells us not to be like them. For again, God knows best that corporate worship is best for us. And so, beloved, let's be about it. Let's be about gathering. Let's obey and make the King's reign visible in that way. Last thing here. I've said corporate worship reflects our King's reign by displaying our unity in Him and by displaying our our fidelity to Him and now no less our gratuity to Him. It becomes evident, you look at the end of verse 4 there, in our thankfulness. Every morning, I wake up to make coffee. There's a, yes, amen. There is a decorative block uh, on the window in front of me that says, three words, grateful, thankful, blessed. Grateful, thankful, blessed. And the substance of true worship really is that simple. You see, unbelieving people reenact the tragedy in Eden by the billions every single day. And being honest, far too often we also find it easier to grumble than to be grateful, to play God rather than say to God from a heart of gratitude, thank you. What I'm saying is that to have a heart of thankfulness to God is to have a new heart. (laughs) That's nothing short of the divine renovation of the soul. It is grace in the heart. By nature, right? We all know this. By nature, we believe I am self-made, I am self-sustained, I am self-improved, I am self-accrediting. Everything we are is owing to us. And insofar as we believe that, we are blind to the truth 
about ourselves and about God. We are really frail creatures and sinful ones at that. God owes us nothing. And yet, and yet, peculiar to His people, we have experienced His creating mercies and His restraining mercies all the way to the experience of His redeeming mercies and then His sanctifying mercies and His sustaining mercies and overall His sovereign mercies. You sit this afternoon on the facts, the incredible, amazing facts that one, you exist. Unlike anybody else has ever been. You exist. And have not been swallowed up by wrath. (laughs) What? But have been clothed in a grace that's pardoned us and set us on an upward journey that's guarded on every side by God so that nothing in all creation can stop us from arriving. You sit on that. You should swell with thanksgiving to God. We deserve none of it. It's all grace. Awareness of grace in Christ is the antidote to grumbling against God. Oh, how Israel grumbled in spite of all God's long-suffering goodness to them. And in that, how they proved to be the subjects, listen now, in their grumbling, they proved to be the subjects of another king. Do you see that? And what an awful king to serve whose subjects major in self-service and gnawing discontentment. But so, when we gather to give thanks to the Lord, we unveil, to the contrary, the true king in his exceeding beauty, which is fantastic enough. But what's more, we also unveil not just the king, but a kingdom of grace and everything good and right and true and lasting. Our gathering with thanksgiving to God at its core sheds light on the Savior King in multiples. In a world that is ripe with isolating individual kingdoms, it reflects powerfully upon Jesus and His reign in us that we long to gather together to thank Him. And so there is unity makes His reign visible. And our fidelity makes His reign visible. And our gratuity, it makes His reign visible. These marks manifest in our corporate worship reflect the King's rule. Last thing here. Let's think on corporate worship as participating in the King's prayer. This is how David closes in verses 6 to 9. If you look there. He says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, 
Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Here is a utility in corporate worship. We get to participate in the king's prayer. David calls the nation here to pray for God's city that she might have, as her name says, Salem, Jerusalem, Shalom, which is peace and security. It's the king's prayer, and his prayer was to be their prayer, and his concerns were to be their concerns, and theirs, as we then see, not first for themselves only, but for each other under this premise, that the good of the worshiping assembly would be for the good of the worshiping one, the individual. I read one this week who said, we have no greater walls around us and thus no greater peace and security than the prayers that we pray for one another. How are our walls? How are our towers? Are they broken down and devastated? Are they weak and crumbly? Are they sturdy but aged? Or are they impenetrably reinforced? Week after week, day by day, do we pray for one another? Do we pray for the stability of our church? Do we pray for the fortitude of our church? Do we pray for the courage of our church? Because we need courage today. Do we pray for the peace of our church? Jesus does. Luke 22, verse 32, whole chapter John 17, Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. Jesus prays for us. If one doesn't care about the good of this assembly, they do not share our King's care or prayer. And what's more, they're like to forfeit their own security. Do you see what it says there? What David prays. May they be secure. How does he qualify they? May they be secure who love you. But what if you don't love the people of the king? Let's get real. Say what we will about our love for the church. If we're, very important word here, if we're defined by disappearing acts, it may very well be lip service. Love is magnetized. And Christian love, most of all, it gathers It gathers. It cares. It offers prayers. In a day marked by so-called Christian mockery of the church, (laughs) is the well-being of this church nearest and dearest to your heart as it is to the heart of our Lord Jesus? I say in all love, let's not be deceived. Your peace and security in Christ is tied to the peace and security of our relationship to Jesus as a body. It's tied to your presence amongst us. 
through David. I need you to see that Christ's prayer here is not for any single individual. It's for the house. It's for the house of David. It's for the house of God. It's for his visible siblings and companions. You look at the very end of this psalm, it's our good that he seeks and that without end. And there is then, it would seem, a peculiar blessing he delights to make known in the assembly. Every time we gather, he's saying to us, listen, all these are yours. And you are theirs. And all are mine. And every single one of you are vouchsafed to my omnipotent care. If we don't prioritize this gathering, what peace, the song says, we often forfeit. What needful care we fail to share. Trading stability for fragility. What do we think, beloved? What do we think? That we have no enemies just beyond these walls? Oh, how desperately we need the spiritual fortification and the retooling of our defense systems and the cleansing of our palates and the resetting of our sights and the affirmations of the victor king and the thankful company of his people and the peace that flows from it which corporate worship uniquely affords us as a participation in the king's prayer. When we gather, we in effect put ourselves under his pledge. We put ourselves under His effectual power. How much good, how much stability, how much armor, how much security, how much peace we gain by corporate worship, only heaven knows. This is the palace beautiful. That may not make any sense to anyone who's never read the Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't, again, you should. But this is the palace beautiful where the man Christian comes, and while he's there, amongst his godly friends, their golden mouths make him sufficient mends for all his griefs. So when he goes with northern steel, he's clawed from his top to his toes to the praise of the king. Unbelieving friend, good news. There is a gate into the city of God. And that gate is a person. And that person is Jesus. It's the king who left his throne to bear his cross and laid down his life to resume his reign as the accomplished savior of sinners like you and like me. He is the prince of peace with God and with one another. So listen, a new Jerusalem really is coming. It really is coming. Don't wait to enter its gate. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. Enter into God's kingdom. Be saved this morning. If you'd love to chat about that, I would love to have that chat with you. Come find me afterwards. Beloved, is corporate worship more like the ratty shirt in my closet? Or the beating heart in your chest? Are we 
on the edge of our seats glad to gather. Now, Charles Spurgeon tells of a dying saint who he says, quote, comforted, comforted herself with this evidence of grace. She cried in her final hours, in life, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwells. And have only expectation then about gathering with the holy congregation above who see the king in his beauty. And Spurgeon then comments, Our happiness at the thought of being in God's house is prophetic of one day being happy in the Father's house on high. Corporate worship is the next door to heaven. It is essential. So, let's heed his heart. Let's reflect the king's rule. Let's participate in his prayer. Let's be glad as our king is to assemble as often as we're able under his direction for his graces to his glory until, until we ascend to that worshiping assembly above that never ceases to do so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And do ask now that you would do a wonderful work within our hearts. Help us to love you more. Help us to love gathering together more to give you the praise that you are worthy of and you alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.